0: All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter seven, we're going to be in verses one through six this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with this morning. It's this that our justification sets us free from the requirements and consequences of the law to serve God for his glory, our joy, and the life of the world in the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Our justification sets us free from the requirements and consequences of the law to serve God for his glory, our joy, and the life of the world in the Holy Spirit. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way, in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> now, it's important that we uh, make sure that we continue to recognize what Paul, is—is is his ultimate project is, right? Remember, he is writing this letter to a church that had become divided. And it was divided along the lines of those Jewish Christians who had started the church, right? And and the Lord had blessed the work of their hands. They had seen many Gentiles from the surrounding area there in Rome come into the church, right? And these Gentile Christians were the new kids on the block, if you will. And the Lord in his providence uh, kicked all of the Jewish Christians out for a season so as to mature the Gentile Christians, And when the Jews returned in God's providence, they came back saying, hey, we appreciate that you've kept our church, but we all know who's really in charge here because we are the people of the covenant. We were the ones who were given the law. And so therefore we know we are God's favored children. So if you would kindly take your back seat. And the Gentile Christians, they bowed up a bit and said, well, that's interesting because if he loves you so much, why do He kick you out and let us take over? Right? We're the new kids on the block. We are obviously the ones that he sent you guys to because he loves us more. So there became this vying for God's favor, God's love, and ultimately power. And at the center of that was the law. And so here Paul is trying to make sure that that as he is trying to help them to see all of the wonderful and beautiful things that unify them, that they not try to go back to something that could only divide them. And it's very important as we hear the word law that we recognize what's not being said. He is not talking about the two great commandments, right? We're not set free from the need, the necessity, the gift, the opportunity to love God. We are not set free from the gift, the opportunity to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's not what's in view here. What's in view is uh, all of the old written code in which you were seeking to try to be righteous and pleasing to the Lord that would only lead to death. To love God and love neighbor helps lead to life, but that's only possible in and through our justification. It's a matter of primacy, but what he's trying to set them free from here is the predilection that runs through us all, which is to try to have something by which we can measure how we're doing and compare ourselves to each other. Now, having said that, let me ask you, which are you more prone to? Are you more prone to legalism? Now, this looks like if you're a rule follower, a rule keeper, if you're the person who loses it when a bunch of people who hardly ever go bowling, you are losing your mind if people's toes are crossing the line, then you're probably prone to legalism, right? Right? If you're the person in the board game that just absolutely loses it because you are just certain somebody took one more jump than they should have for whatever game it is you're playing, you're probably more prone to legalism. And then there's the other side, which is licentiousness, which is just a fancy word for I can do whatever I want. And maybe that's you. And what's interesting is how strict you are about being able to do whatever you want. You're a bit of a grace Pharisee which is fascinating, you demand that the whole world bow to your ability to do whatever you want. And so you uh, like to plead God's grace, but in a cheap way if you're not careful. And what's really interesting is the truth of the matter is we're both of these, all of us. Some, you may just lean more to the other, but it depends on the circumstance. It's amazing how licentious legalistic people will get when they don't get their way, when the law doesn't work for them. It's amazing how legalistic licentious people will get when other people don't do what they have by law said should happen. And so this tendency runs through all of us because at the heart of both of these things is self. At the center of both of these things is self is preeminent. And this is what Paul was trying to strike at the heart of. Is that if you make yourself the center of the universe... You can never be unified to God or to his people or to the way things actually were intended to work. You go against the grain of everything that was created by him. And so what he's trying to do is set us free from this selfishness. So as we turn back to the text, keep that in mind and recognize that this is the beginning, uh, chapter seven, is the beginning actually of a discussion about the Holy Spirit although he only gets mentioned here at the beginning and then he shows up quite a bit in chapter eight, it's very important for you not to lose the presence of the Spirit because this is Paul's discussion of the antithesis of the law to the Holy Spirit. If you try to read who the Romans seven person is, without that in view, you are gonna head down some pretty weird hallways. So, but that's for another sermon. All right, let's turn back to the text. And notice how many times he's really hearkening back to chapter six, which we also have to keep in view. He says, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now he's pointing back here to Romans chapter six, verse 14, when he says, You are no longer slaves to sin, you are no longer under the law, you are under grace. And so what he's trying to get them to understand, and and, and he's actually gonna shift his metaphors here, which I think is actually very important. It's not without cause that he shifts it. He's gonna shift from the language of slavery and commodity to the language of relationship and marriage, which is masterful on his part to get them to understand what he's emphasizing. And so he lets them know straight away, hey, you have been set free from the law, And that has occurred through death. And again, he's pointing back to in chapter six, uh, verses three and four, when he's talking about baptism, right? That we have died in and through Christ to, to the consequences, the wages of sin. We have died to the requirements of the law because Christ perfectly kept it. It's been fulfilled. Righteousness can now be given to us because of what Christ has done. You don't need to try to earn God's love anymore. You don't need to try to compare yourself. You've been beautifully and wonderfully set free to be who God has created you to be in all your limitations, in all your failures, in all of your giftings, in all of your quirks, in all of your weirdness and oddities. You get to be who God has created you to be without having to worry about how you compare to anyone or anything else. That is a gift. That is insanely freeing. If you were to think about how much of your time and energy gets wasted on trying to compare yourself, how you view your body, how you view your beauty, how you view your intellect, how you view your most recent Wordle score, for God's sake. Uh, (laughs) Tommy apparently found one that's like Greek New Testament. So if you're really nerdy, you can do that. Um, And so it's it's important to be set free from this necessity to constantly measure and, and to try to be better than Everyone else. It's an insanely freeing thing because then our our banquet, our our cup can run over with the relational capital that is all around us because of what Christ has done. We no longer have to fear God's wrath in, in the sense that it will destroy us. We can now fear as in awe our Abba Father and recognize that this life means something. So notice he's gonna pick up the metaphor here in verse two. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. This is very important that what he's saying is you cannot have the law, and union with Christ as your identity, right? He strikes at the heart of this in the book of Galatians where the Judaizers, who I I bet you meant well, I I really think they they were just trying to be holy. This is the the root of all legalism that rises is we're we're trying to take something serious usually. And so the Judaizers, if you remember, were the, the Jews who told the converted Gentile Christians in Galatia, Hey, it's great that you got Jesus, but do you have the circumcision? Do you have all the other Jewish stuff? And what Paul says is you don't need that. All of that stuff pointed to Jesus. Once you have that, which is the reality to which it pointed, you don't need the shadows anymore. He also says this in Colossians chapter two. It's very important that we recognize this because we have this tendency to wanna go back, don't we? I've been reading Leviticus not just for fun, but as part of my Bible reading plan. And, and this time through, I am so struck by just how uh, embodied their worship was, how much they had to think about things and how they had, so much of their lives was, was spent around trying to remain clean or be made clean. And I thought, man, that would be exhausting. This, is a, this would be exhausting in worship. In fact, um, I, I couldn't be your pastor because if you have a blemish... I've got one, two, three, four, 15, 20, or 30. You can't, and I can't grow facial hair, which is a real problem. So I couldn't be a priest back in Levitical times. But beautifully, Christ has made us all a kingdom of priests. We don't have to live up to all of that cleanliness and exhaust ourselves thinking only about uh, the negative side of the law. We have been set free to get to participate in the beauty of the kingdom. Gifted and empowered by the king with the Holy Spirit. And so what a gift it is that we are wed no longer to that which can only show us we're wrong. It's kind of a, it's almost an abusive relationship if you think about it if you're not careful. Now I want to be careful here because it's God's law. But in a sense, the abuse actually is on our part, not the law's part. Actually, Robbie's going to preach on that next week. But the issue is we would whip ourselves scarred. We would beat ourselves to death trying to keep it or trying to change the whole world so we wouldn't. And so it's important that we see we are no longer wed to that, right? We, We don't have to do all of that. Jesus has made us clean. We have what all of those things pointed to. This is what the book of Hebrews says. You no longer have to make sacrifices. The book of Hebrews is all about the fulfillment, not the abrogation. If, if you just see these things as, no, they've just been swept away. No, they have been fulfilled. And this is the great glory of Jesus to whom we are wed. We are wed to the person who has fulfilled all of this and has imputed to us his holiness, his cleanliness, his righteousness. What a gift that is for us to be wed. Why would we want someone else in that relationship? Why would we want something that's only going to take away from that glory and that beauty? And so Paul goes on, picking up verse four, likewise, my brothers and sisters, you have also died to the law, notice, through the body of Christ, not through anything you've done, You have died to the law in your justification. You have been made an heir. You have been made a son or daughter of the God Most High in and through the death of Christ. This is why it's so important for us to remember our status as baptized ones. To continue to return to our justification and remember all of its gifts, which we talked about last week. And he's telling them this is a reality. This is not something you continue to have to strain toward or to gain or to earn. It has been given to you. You have died with Christ. And it is a death that is required, right? We talked about this last week. You don't get to decide the consequences of sin. I know we'd love to. I know we'd love to try to decide what we think is holy and what we think is right and what ought to please God. That's not how it works. And we know that but we continue to try to kind of go back to it. And so the creator has determined, these things are deadly, they will kill you. And what's interesting is we know it's true, right? We, we know so much of, of what we do is actually destructive to us. But yet we continue to do it. I, I remember when I was a, 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 a Coca-Cola addict, almost at a Coke addict, now, that's a different... <laughs> It's a different phenomenon. Both are deadly, by the way. Uh, but a Coca-Cola addict, you, come on, y'all. You can, it takes battery acid off of stuff. Like you can clean your toilet with it because it's that corrosive, but you're like, nah, I'm gonna put it on inside. I, I'm pretty sure because I love it, it won't hurt me. Because I love it so much. Think about, think about what I'm saying right now. Because I love it so much, it won't hurt me. Hm, that's just not True. Is it? And I don't drink Coca-Cola anymore because of Fit by 50. Uh, I'm on the whole 80 diet or something. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's important that we recognize that just because we think something ought not hurt doesn't mean that it won't. That something ought not be bad doesn't mean that it's not. And the Lord has been clear about what is destructive to us. He has not made it a riddle. You don't have to go to Egypt and stand before the Sphinx and hope to solve the riddle and not be killed. He has made it clear what we are to be about. Don't forget what we heard from Micah. He's made it clear to us that we are to walk humbly with the Lord our God. And we are to to love justice. And we are to to be humble. And we are to love one another. That's clear. That's clear. And there are things that are destructive to that. And praise be to God that he didn't just leave that as the only reality, the only truth, right? All this stuff that can kill us, all this stuff that we're guilty of, and yet he said, I will take that all on. Jesus said, I will bear the full weight of that so that you can be set free, so that you can walk in newness of life, so that you can taste and see that the Lord is good and participate in the remaking of the heavens and earth in eternity we get to participate in that. That needs to move us more than it does. And so notice what he says is the purpose for these things. Verse five, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It's the only fruit it could bear. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Notice that slavery language that he brings back in in reference to the law, that commodified. We were just a commodified thing under the law. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And it's important that we see that that, uh, going back even to the end of verse four is that the whole reason we've been raised with Christ to newness of life is, is so that we would bear fruit for God. Remember John 15, when it says that we are connected uh, to, to, to the vine, which is Christ, we are the branches. It says in, in 15, eight, that we are guaranteed to bear fruit for God. Can you, can you, can it be any more amazing than that? That if you who are in Christ Here's good news. Even though you don't always see it and you don't always recognize it for the glory that it really is, you who are in Christ are actually bearing good fruit for God. Now, better that you would be active in cultivating and knowledgeable of, not for the sake of your own favor, but for your joy, right? For for your tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. This is what we've been saved for. I am convinced That too much of what we know is only what we've been saved from, and I'm not even convinced we're all that knowledgeable about that. But that's where all of our energy and effort seems to go. What have we been saved from? And as if that were sufficient, right? That's the licentious folks who say, look, I can do whatever I want because I've been saved from. Well, what have you been saved for? Well, to enjoy what I've been saved from. No, it's not what the Bible says. So what Paul says here, in fact, you've been saved for God's glory. You have been saved for the purpose of bearing fruit in him. Right? And we've talked about the many fruits this could be. It'd be worthy of us kind of considering again. You are to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. We have the great joy of being able to be thorough in our repentance. We need fear what no other person knows about us because God knows it all and has loved us in Christ and has cast as far as the East is from the West the sins we've committed. So why am I worried about what you know? Why do I continue to try to clothe myself as, Isaiah 59 says, as with a spider's web, which is translucent, And has a bunch of holes in it. Don't cover much. We get to be freed from shame and guilt that comes with it. That's some of the fruits in keeping with the prince. We get to bear the fruit of the spirit, which is love in all of its many forms, as we uh, learned some uh, a couple of years back. Right? We we get to bear eternal fruit stuff that matters so that nothing is meaningless, so that we will get a chance to, in the new heavens, new earth, take joy in seeing what the Lord has done in and through us. What a gift that will be. And we get to taste some of that even now. So you have been saved for something, to bear fruit for God's glory and to walk in the Holy Spirit. Now, remember from our sermon series on the Holy Spirit and the Gospel of John, which is where there's the, the most that we get about the Holy Spirit's person and work. Unfortunately, most of the time we want to jump to 1 Corinthians 12 uh, and, and just do all the whiz-bang stuff. Instead of actually understanding foundationally, who, who is the Spirit so that it affects how we view the gifts that he grants to us? And so in John, if you remember, the Spirit serves uh, three basic functions. Four, uh, really, Uh, but that's actually going to come up in Romans 8. But the three are, he always exalts Jesus. So how will you know if you're bearing fruit that is glorifying to God? How will you know? What should it do? It should always glorify Jesus. Always. Always. Jesus the Bible, not the Jesus of your own making, not the, the Jesus who never confronts anybody, not the Jesus who never speaks sharply, not the Jesus who judges the church first. If it's exalting anything other than those that Jesus of the Scripture, it's the wrong Jesus. Jesus isn't just grandfatherly, right? What's interesting in Revelation 1, when the sword's coming out of his mouth in the vision that John sees in Revelation 1, you know who he's judging, right? The church. It is not until 19 when it's the world. But the church always, always judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Now that is actually a good thing for us. It helps us to grow and look more like Jesus. So if you, if you, if you only think that it exalts Jesus, if, if, if it's fun for you, you're wrong. And sometimes suffering is part of the exaltation of Christ. And the Spirit convicts of sin. He humbles us. He helps us to see who and whose we are. He helps us to see that we don't know it all. He helps us to see that we are still a mix of saint-sinner, which is what Paul is getting to here in 7. And he also guides us. So when we have a question, we don't know which way to go, and we need wisdom We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Now, you may say, yeah, but he don't don't really text or send emails, which would be nice. No, he doesn't. But what he does do is point you back to the word and helps to call forth what you've been cultivating, right? It's not just magic. This is one of the reasons why we must persevere in our devotions, must put ourselves before the scripture and be able to articulate the reason for the hope that is within us because this is what the Spirit stirs. And the last thing that's not mentioned in John, but we'll get to in eight, is he prays for us when we don't even know what to pray. That's good news for all of us prayerless wretches. Because there's days I don't even know what to be looking out for. I don't, I don't even know what's coming. I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to say. He may say, but you went to seminary. You're our pastor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Praise be to God, the Spirit who dwells in me groans on my my behalf when I don't even know what to do. And he leads and he guides and he exalts. So that's very important. So if we're going to talk about walking in the Spirit, which Paul's going to get to uh, in chapter 8, it's important that we know the banks of the river. If we're going to use our gifts, if we're going to honor the Lord and bear fruit, it should be in line uh, with who the Spirit is. And so we see here from what Paul is teaching us that the law It can only divide because what the law does is allow us to compare ourselves. What the law does is allow us to keep score. Spirit doesn't allow that. What the Spirit does is set us free from all that commodity and allows us to be relational and allows us to be unified and allows us to exalt Jesus and to bear fruit in keeping with God for his glory, our joy, and the life of the world. Listen to what John Stott says about this passage. He says, here, the antithesis between law and spirit indicates that he's referring to the way of sanctification, which is not by our struggling to keep the law, but by the power of the indwelling spirit. So for justification, we are not under law, but under grace. For sanctification, we are not under law, but led by the spirit. But again, remember the banks of the river, led by the Spirit to exalt Jesus, to be humble, and to reach those who don't know Jesus. So let me ask you, what has your justification set you free for? Now, I wanna challenge you to not answer this in the theological abstract, but instead to try to think through, all right, given my circumstances, my history, my spheres of influence, the ways in which you have gifted me, the ways in which you have not gifted me. What have I been set free for in my specific context? Too often we don't take the time to really think that through because the Lord who is sovereign has placed you where you are. He has, he has called forth your history and all that you have. He's put you in the situations that you're in and so it would be good for us to really hone in on what have I been justified for in these circumstances. Now, for many of you, what you're going to find is most of what we have been justified for is just not all that exciting, right? It's a long, slow process, much of it. Our own sanctification is long and slow, the sanctification of others is long and slow. I've been using 1 Corinthians 13 to kind of prayerfully prepare for things, and one of the lines that has been sticking out to me is it says, love does not insist on its own way. Oh, how I would love to insist on how swiftly you all grow into the person of Christ. Oh, how I would long to be in control of who the Lord brings to this church, just like you, Right, you know, I, we, would, we would, it would be superstars. That's what we'll be shooting for. Did I just say you're not superstars? No, there's some, some real talent out there. <laughs> but, but we think about it like we, if we could insist in our own way, what are we going to do? We're always going to make it awesome and easy, right? And so that's not how it works. And so, uh, part of what we have been set free for is patience. and kindness, and enduring, and long-suffering. And that ain't always exciting. And so be careful as you answer the question that you not miss some of the beauty and some of the everydayness of your justification and your ongoing sanctification. And then secondly, how has the Holy Spirit been a help to you in this new way to serve? And again, don't get all theologically weird and be like, well, that's a mystery and I can't really say now, can I? Uh, no, you can't, actually. You should be able to testify to the Spirit's work in you. Where has Jesus been exalted by the Spirit in your life? If you read God's Word or you read some other book of some kind or watch some movie, there's not very many you can do that with, but, and it somehow exalts Jesus, that's the Spirit at work. That's not you. If you've been convicted of sin recently, the Spirit is at work. If you have been guided in wisdom or the word has spoken you in some way that's helped lead you in a circumstance and helped you, the Spirit's at work. Even better, he prays on your behalf all the time. He's always interceding for you as comforter. So what a great gift that we have in the Spirit and what a great gift that in declaring this this morning, we get to come to the table. We get to be nourished Uh, by what Christ has done for us and taste it and see yet again that the Lord is good. Now, for those of you uh, who who don't know, we uh, don't just view this table as a memorial. There is something actually that is happening this morning in each and every one of us as we participate in the Lord's table. Even if all it is is the act of obedience to do it one more time, that's a beautiful thing. To, To be willing to admit one more time I'm a Christian, even if that's as strong as the confession was. And so what a gift that we get to be nourished by the Holy Spirit, and again, it's not the elements in and of themselves that are terribly nourishing. It is what Christ has done to be reminded of who and whose we are, to be reminded of our weddedness to Christ in relationship, to be reminded of we've been set free from the law. We no longer live under its tyranny and its consequence, which is death. We get to live lives that are meaningful and eternal and matter. And so this is the beauty of the table for us to be nourished in this morning. Would that the Lord would nourish us in this way. Now, Mark, you can go ahead and come on up. If, if you are not a Christian, this table doesn't mean anything to you. It's okay. You can, you can let it pass you by, or you, you can pass it up. If you have or are harboring unforgiveness, meaning you, you're decided you're not going to forgive somebody, as far as you're concerned, they can burn. Well, you're not God. You don't get to say that. And so if that's kind of your heart this morning, you can't take of the table either because it's not going to help you. It's only going to harden you further, and I'd rather you not. But for everybody else who professes Christ as Savior, who recognizes uh, their need for Jesus, their need for the Holy Spirit, their their brokenness and sin without him, everybody else who who is a Christian, you are welcome at this table. You didn't have to come in here perfect today. You didn't have to have a great week to, to, to earn the table. No, it is here for you. And Christ in his grand hospitality says to you, come and be reminded of who and whose you are. And remember the words that he spoke on that night when he was with his disciples and he wanted them to have something they would come back to again and again and remember what he was doing for them. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And I love the way he said it, given for you. It is a gift. And in that statement, he was saying to them, I will be the sacrifice that takes on the full weight of your sin, past, present, and future. I don't even understand that, but I don't have to. I get to receive it. And beautifully, he meant that they would no longer be separated from God because of their sin. They would no longer be separated from one another because of their competition and comparison and disunity. He was saying to them, I am uniting you to God and to each other in me. And as part of that same meal, as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it up. He said, this, this is my blood given for the forgiveness of sin. This is the blood of the new covenant, the new way. And in essence, he was saying, as you take this in, it is similar to you taking in the Holy Spirit, that you would be indwelt and empowered to walk in this newness of life, this resurrected newness of life granted to us in Jesus.